On this week's show, using spider webs to gauge an ecosystem's health, using chickens to make our drugs, Google might make your phone 100 million times faster. Sort of. Who knows? Let's do the show. Three, two, one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 114, recorded on Thursday, December 9th, 2015. I think it's hump day, actually. It is Wednesday. <laughs> this is what happens when you just read from the screen. Oh, welcome back to the show. We are very, very excited this week. It's a very rare week where we don't have Carolina. She wasn't able to make it tonight, but uh, all of us deep mills, sultry tones will try to woo you with something I don't even know to be honest with you. <laughs> so it's excited that it's exciting that she's not here. Did I say that? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> oh, sorry, Hopefully she Carolina. doesn't listen to the show. Good thing she doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> oh well you can hear we got everyone else with us today. We got Dr. Delbert Jackson, our PhD in biomedical engineering. Hello, Scott. I, too, am reading from the screen and enjoying it. <laughs> are, are you enjoying this Thursday, December 13th? Uh, move the teleprompter. Ah, uh, yes. Today, Thursday. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Christian Copley, Salem, PhD candidate, cell molecular pharmacology and physiology. Yay. Yay. So, oh, and I'm Scott Barnett. I do what Christian does. Not remotely. In some general sense, potentially sometimes. This, as it turns out, has been the month of the death illness. Does anyone know what it actually is? I heard something about a norovirus going around. Um, I, as we know from my whining last week, was sick. My wife is just getting sick tonight. Uh, I'm sure it had nothing to do with me, even though her symptoms are identical. It could be anything, really. And Christian... Yeah. Uh, pretty much died this week oh, and I don't, I don't know if carolina was sick uh delbert i know there's issues in your family so uh what's going on here i'm as healthy as a horse and about as attractive where did that term come from um are horses less prone to illness are they like sharks and they can't get well i think cancer? if the horse is sick you just shoot it and turn it into glue so therefore <laughs> not the a lot of the horses out there are as healthy as horses or they pretend to be as healthy as they can be because i know their fate yeah I, I wish i knew i know i know why you say don't look a gift horse in the mouth i do know that one because why i want to lick a horse in the mouth yeah <laughs> <laughs> you don't look a gift horse in the mouth because typically when oh, you were look. buying a horse back in the day you looked at its teeth to determine its overall health. If it had bad teeth it means it was malnourished and it wasn't taken care of and all kinds of issues stem from the mouth well-being of the horse but if someone gives you a horse it's very rude to look in its mouth because you're saying hey thanks for the gift but let me make sure you didn't give me a crappy horse here so don't look a gift horse in the mouth means if someone gives you something nice just take it and say thanks don't be a dick and look at it too much you know yeah i didn't think i did not plan on saying don't look at it too much tonight <laughs> that was uh, an interesting turn so there you go you guys do anything fun in your your healthy horse horseness? Um, no, I don't have any interesting stories to share. So in place of that, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Amazing Grace, the woman who popularized the term debugging uh, because she actually had to remove a moth from from a computer. She was a American computer scientist. Uh, she died in 1992, but she was born on December 9th today, 1906. She's also credited with creating the first compiler. So there. Oh my goodness! In, in lieu of an interesting story for me, happy birthday, Amazing Grace. That is pretty cool. We just came, we just had um, uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor. Is that December 7th? December 7th. That yep. day will live in infamy. in infamy, and it has. Even people like us who were not even close to being alive still know it. Yeah, I've I've visited. I think you were out there too. So you probably went to Pearl Harbor, but man, visiting that memorial leaves a deep impact on you. No, I've never actually been out there before. What? Which island is it on? Uh, Oahu. Yeah, I've never been to Oahu before. I've uh, been to Maui like for two seconds, and then uh, uh, we were on um, Kauai. Oh, so nice. never been. 
Yeah, everyone says it's absolutely kind of like it's really like sobering, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, buttons. Speaking of sobering, <laughs> I have completed. I I I printed. I had the button maker, and I made a limited edition batch of fifty buttons. They've all been made. They will all you be made sent out that, to fans. Like you made them yourself. I had I I designed the design which i apologize in advance i printed it out i there's a circle cutter that cuts out the circle and then you use a metal stamping thing that looks like it's from world war ii and you go <laughs> and you, you stamp out buttons wow. from scratch. you didn't like they, order them online or something you, actually... you probably could have but i had access to a free button printer and uh printing paper is cheap and so i just decided to go the old economical route yeah. And it literally cost me like five dollars to do everything. Oh, I like yeah. it. Yeah, so I'm sending them out. I'll send you one, Delbert. Um, I've got special founders pins too, uh, just for us. Haha. <laughs> and uh, anyone else who I said I was going to send buttons to, I will. I also promised temporary tattoos. I'm really on the fence about that right now because it will yep. take me a couple more weeks to do that if I want to do it. And I have the pins now, do and I'll it. probably have a little time this weekend. I might just send out the buttons to people. Do who the want buttons them. now and the temp tattoos for the next um, contest slash. Think of those as like a New Year thing. Ah, oh, I like it. It's a tease. Okay, so uh, done and done. Uh, if you ordered buttons, you're going to get them. I'm not even going to put a picture of the buttons up because I want everyone to be surprised and delighted by the buttons, even though you will be most likely disappointed. Um, and then I'll pull up after I send them out to everyone there. And that includes you, Delbert. You get your, your buttons. Um, and that's that, so. <laughs> Why am I, like, especially called out for getting a button? Because I already I mean, have mine. Oh, okay. What a good guy. You'll be such a good dad, Scott. You don't want anybody to feel left out. Thank you. Everyone gets buttons all I the way around. That. I'll be like, sorry, son. <laughs> I can't afford to send you to college. But you got a button. <laughs> I love you, son. So, um, as far as me, not much going on. What is our time? Oh, our time's doing all right here. Can I complain about one thing? Of it's, course. It's about merging vehicles because this happened to me not once, not twice, but three times in the last couple of weeks. And I, I, it's as close as I've gone to road rage as possible. So. If I can paint this picture in your mind's eye, just imagine this is the scenario that you've been presented. You are entering a highway or freeway system. It's a straight road. It's fine. You start accelerating onto the highway, okay? There is a car behind you. Now, in this highway, you have a nice little area where you you have your own little lane, and then you must merge with what is the rightmost lane of traffic. This is what you do every time you enter the freeway, except... When you have a super a-hole, which has happened, again, three times to me. Now, I don't have a Mustang. I have a Ford Fiesta. It's a new Ford Fiesta. It's it, it's not breaking any land speed records, but it's got <laughs> decent acceleration. It can get you where you're going. And so I'm accelerating onto the freeway. And again, I don't have a, like a Cummings like freaking like V8, and I'm not accelerating from 30 to 70 in like three seconds, but I'm accelerating at a reasonable pace. I'm not being grandma here. So I start accelerating to highway speeds here. The guy behind me, the said a-hole, does a thing where right as you're starting to merge, they shoot past you and then start going straight. Now, there may be traffic in front of them or there may not they may just hit 65 and decide to slow down, but what happens is that now my merging lane is rapidly coming to an end and the guy who was previously behind me that decided it was critical for him to go to 40 to 70 in one and a half seconds is now to the left of me. And now I look like the a-hole who is like bumbling around. Like, how am I going to get on the freeway now? Because that open space, which was meant for me three seconds ago is now occupied by the guy who was behind me. And I have to like hit my brakes and then like kind of swerve in behind the guy because he couldn't wait three seconds and merge like a human being. What's going on? Like, why does this happen? So don't be that guy. If that is you, just chill out, man. We're all getting there. I'm not doing 35 entering the freeway. I'm like at 58 by the time like we're merging, and I'm rapidly approaching 65. But yet you've given me no option but to like like swerve around people to try to get on the freeway now at this point. So just don't do that. 
Sorry. That's maybe, what I got. Maybe he gave you an opportunity to demonstrate no, there were no your amazing <laughs> handling skills and the performance capabilities of the Ford Fiesta. <laughs> You're a wonderful human being for thinking that way. Um, all of that's inaccurate, but I appreciate the effort. But I do want to give a, a positive shout out. When I went to get these uh, the button things printed out down at the At One Center, which is just kind of like the multimedia center at our university, because I can do it for real cheap. I went down to get it all printed out. I put what I thought was the appropriate amount of time in the meters. It was not an appropriate amount of time. There was like five minutes too short. I come up to my car, uh, and there, lo and behold, is a guy behind my car with a little ticket printing machine, and he's typing information in. And I'm like 30 feet away in like one of those crazy madmen. I'm like, hey, hey! You, I'm like, I'm right here! Wait, I just need to know, did you say, I'm Scott Barnett of the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast? Like... Is that how you first? I assumed him? he knew just by looking at me. Oh, it's kind of okay. like Brad Pitt saying, "I'm Brad Pitt." Like, oh, of course, I'm everyone sorry. knows who he is. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so, and the guy, he looked up, and he's still typing, and he makes eye contact, and he goes, points to the car. He's not going to yell like me because he is not a best interest in like the situation. He points to the car, and I go, "Yeah, yeah, it's me." And he goes, "Okay, no worries," and he just walks away. Wow, that's it. Like a decent human being. I've said such horrible things about meter maids in the past, but this guy was actually somewhat reasonably cool about the situation, and he walked away. So Way to balance uh, your, your karmic debt there. You know? It was. It, it, all, it all worked out. Although I would argue I, I didn't have any debt. I argue <laughs> the person who cut me off is the one with the debt. <laughs> but I see where you're coming at. <laughs> I'm faultless in all things. I can see that. I'm sorry for <laughs> suggesting otherwise. It was good, yes. Um so, anyways, that's uh, Is my story. Still alive? Did he? Did the disease overtake him? I just I mute myself so that when I type and cough repeatedly, it doesn't come across oh. on. The <laughs> like that. <laughs> that's, that's what funny. I've been doing basically the entire time you've been talking. So, um, other than challenging your immune system and uh, causing your B cells to go hyperactive, uh, have you done anything uh, fun that our listeners want to hear about in the last seven days? The last seven days, um, I slept a lot. And I am converting. I'm doing something horrifyingly illegal, and I'm going to admit that on the air. I'm copying some of my Blu-ray movies to my hard drive so I can watch them in the comfort of my home without having to get off the couch and put them into the Blu-ray player. So suck it. That's it. Yeah, there's a lot of debate about the legality of that. I know it's technically illegal, but anyways, yeah, I'm, it's probably not something. They have a hard time prosecuting you without you sharing it. And, well, yes, and the fact that I don't think you would ever get prosecuted if you actually had possession of the physical Blu-ray as well. I mean, that's like um, the there's ultimate some, a-hole. There's some technical law about just making a copy. No, no, no. I agree that it's technically illegal, but if you had, like, I paid for this, and I'm making a copy for myself, like, that's like a double whammy of, like, be cool, man. That's the parking maid going, like, all right, man, it's all yeah, right. Yeah, and it's not worth it for them to go after it because it's – you can argue fair use and blah 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 and so it's kind of sort of a sketchy ground but the moment it becomes available on the internet they're after you so. all right and fun fact too i have a friend who will remain nameless that's into picking locks just as a hobby because <laughs> he's a pretty cool person and he likes doing like cool stuff like that um and this friend of mine found out very recently that even being in possession of lock picks in the state of nevada is considered criminal intent and yeah. is a felony. Yeah. What You know what's even funnier? The same thing applies to the little magnetic gun thing that takes the tags off of clothing in a department store. Oh, no kidding, huh? If you, it's a felony to, to have possession of that outside of the workplace. Yeah. Yeah, Very I had a couple of strippers around. And Nevada's only like one of two states. Like, they have the chart of where it's illegal. And in like 48 states... Like, it's completely legal to have lock picks. Uh, you just have, like, unless you're breaking into someone's place, you know. That is so. Anyway. It sounds like, just as a clarification, in case you uh, loyal Nevada listeners wish to buy some, is possession can be considered evidence of criminal intent. It's only in the state of, oh, geez, is that Tennessee? <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's been a while. I think in Tennessee, uh, is it restricted under current law? Every other state, to one degree or another, you can have it. Even in Nevada. Did you just Google that? Yeah. Oh, because we'll have to compare Googling sources, because my Google source said 
possession is criminal intent. But I would be wonderful. I could tell my friend um, if uh, that is in fact true. So, oh, you're using Tool.us. Yeah, that's a really good site. My friend says. Um, so I'll. Uh, okay. It looks Anyways. legit because they have like words, actual and statutes, pictures. like U.S. Yeah. statute, whatever. Yeah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah blah yeah. Um, Anyways, well, oh my gosh, we have bantered to death here. Probably because there's only three of us and we're short of stories. But uh, people come for science, and science we will give them. Science blast. Science blast. Coughing pew. Um, so many fun things to talk about. I have a couple stories. I know Dell has a story, so I'll just kick off an easy one. And actually, this will segue into yours uh, nicely here. And uh, it will start with uh, hard drives, believe it or not. And it is actually a biochemical story and a, a, a molecular biology story. So uh, I am into photography. My computer, I've got tons of storage. As a matter of fact, I have a couple six terabyte, terabyte hard drives. If you're really into spending money, you can get a 10 terabyte hard drive. So that's a lot of data, a lot of place store. You can even get like a terabyte flash drive here. But as is in the past, we've all found out, nature has always figured a way to beat us in pretty much anything we do here. And this goes with data storage as well. You know, we talked in the past, and I think it was a story that Dell brought up, or one of us brought up at a certain point in the past, where people are using, in the past, have used DNA as a mean to, means to store data. As far back as like 2012, they've actually generated DNA that was stored data, uh, like a, I think it was like a sonnet or a poem or something like that, and they were able to to, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sequence that DNA and read the poem back. So it's pretty cool here. And the reason they use DNA and the reason people are so interested in using DNA as a means of storage is because as far as data density goes, I mean, a, a 10 terabyte hard drive and the size of that compared to what DNA compared, it's laughable. A ball-sized DNA the size of a grain of rice can hold an exabyte of information. An exabyte wow. is a million terabytes. That, that seems that seems re incredible to me. I don't know if in a, either of you can answer this question, but it seems germane. What is the like? If I have a hard drive and it's, I'm assuming it's writing ones and zeros or mm -hmm. some sort of, you know, hexadecimal or whatever. What is the unit of each piece of information? Like, what is the it's unit? A, it's of a magnetic string. So the disk it will record onto a magnetic platter. And okay. a zero is no magnetic information. A one is some magnetic information. So some how, how big is that space? Oh, uh, physically, yeah, microns. Yeah, they're they're okay. they're very small. Yeah, but uh, I mean, nanometers probably. Are they even nanometers? Well, computing cores are. I'm not entirely sure of the size scale. I guess Christian on uh, storage. Okay. Yeah, with a CPU, we're down to like what nine nanometers, something like that. But that's 22 right. nanometers. Oh, we're smaller than 22. Are we? Yeah, we have to be. So I'm almost at, certain. Uh, no. I know we're reaching I, the theoretical limit. Yeah, we are, but we're. I don't think we're at 22 yet. Okay. I know because I just researched this for my story. <laughs> uh, I will look that up. So, um, but yeah, with storage, it's 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 quite a bit different there. And yes, it seems. Like you, if you have a this chunk of magnetic information stored in something that is uh, a few microns thick, like how much more density could DNA actually have, right? Yeah. I don't know. Apparently a lot. A lot, apparently. Because <laughs> a grain of size can have a million terabytes worth of data on there. And uh, the other big advantage is not just how much data you can store in DNA, but it's the longevity. You know, if you have a magnetic back, uh, if you have a magnetic drive, the chance of it lasting more than a decade or two are very slim before you have a catastrophic failure on there or besides the, by the time the magnet keep eventually demagnetizes and you're not going to be able to draw it. You know, DNA can be measured in centuries or even longer. Geez, like we can, if under the right cold storage conditions, you could probably literally have millennia where DNA is not going to degrade significantly. So, but as I'd mentioned in the past, the idea of using DNA to store, DNA to store data, it's not just theoretical anymore. Uh, a few teams have done some basic stuff in the past, but there's been a little bit of a move forward here. And two teams from both Microsoft and the University of Washington, as well as an entirely separate group at the University of Illinois, have recently published some results of what they've been able to do. And what's cool is they did a couple things here. One is that they 
Um, for redundancy, they used PCR. If you don't know what that is, it's, uh, we've talked in the past on the show, it's polymerase chain reaction, which means you can take a segment of DNA that you've created. In this case, we're storing a sonnet or a poem, and you use PCR just to amplify that sequence over and over and over again. So if some of that uh, DNA degrades over time, you have a lot of backup copies. It's like having thousands and thousands of backup copies of every single uh, piece of data you're trying to store, which is really good. Redundancy is always good here. Uh, and you can also, with this uh, technique, they've been able to add in these small markers to align data and to fingerprint it. So if you can have very unique little sections of code that you go, ah, this code goes exactly here within my DNA sequence. So if something gets broken up in a weird way, you still have a way to, to pair up the two uh, broken strands of DNA. And it will also is a way of saying that this is a copyrighted or, or, or was written by this one individual and it's a very good way to fingerprint your DNA, to fingerprint your data without uh, anyone being able to do it. And the big problem we have is being able, currently is the speed of writing this and the speed of reading it. It's still very slow. Uh, you're not going to be writing and reading information anywhere like you would a, a, like a, a DVD or, or a magnetic drive right now. But you know, that's all just a matter of time. All these things speed up. One of my, the coolest ways they can read DNA is through a next-gen sequencing technique called Nanopore. Have you guys heard of Nanopore? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nanopore is really cool. Uh, it's, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's my favorite, maybe because it's the simplest to visualize and it doesn't take a lot of brain power. But I also like the principle behind it. You, you in essence, have millions of little holes that are a couple or a few nanometers in diameter, like a, think of like a colander, and the DNA feeds through it. And there's a little... Uh, uh, they can put an electrical current through there and it can measure the resistance of whatever is going through it. And it's DNA in this case. And AT and C and G oh. each have a different level of resistance. That is cool. It's super cool. And so as the DNA gets gets pushed through this colander, it just reads and it goes resistance this much A, that resistance this much G, and it just goes And it's doing this millions of times in sequence or at, ident at the exact same time. Um, and so you can read whole genomes in a matter of like like minutes it's absolutely incredible here so so maybe they'll use something like that but um uh, the illinois scientist team they were able to encode parts of uh, wikipedia pages from six different universities and here's the cool part through the techniques they used and they didn't go a lot into this article i apologize i should have dug deeper they were able to edit the written text within the dna basically cut out and put in new segments of dna to edit the uh, the DNA like you'd want to do on a normal hard drive, and uh, and then they were able to 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 read the edits they made here, and um, the Harvard University though they're only trying to encode data right now and encode it in large volumes. They're trying to encode and retrieve the entire silent film 1902: A Trip to the Moon, which is the first silent film ever made. So they're trying to use DNA, ATC and G to encode an entire film, uh, which is. Freaking awesome. So we'll see what comes of that, and I'll keep uh, people updated. Not uh, because I'm doing the research, though, because I'll look on the internet. But I, I have a question. What is the fidelity of creation? Like, It seems like my concern with DNA storage of information would be the fidelity, because even, you know, tech polymerase or whatever is you're going to get errors. Well, like, that's a good question, yeah. You're not going to have 100% fidelity in any DNA copying that we can do currently unless they have some sort of weird synthesis mechanism. Yeah, and, and polymerase has a surprisingly large, it's surprisingly error prone, and we oh, have yeah. a lot of enzymes that are designed to fix those errors. So I wonder yeah. what the mechanism is to ensure, yeah, you flip enough bits, then what you're doing <laughs> doesn't work anymore. You'd almost need like a miniature genome like, sitting around with the capacity to produce genome fixing proteins in the pro I don't know that right. seems like it gets all of a sudden really complicated I think this is all a short-term problem in that I don't think that in the future when this becomes a viable means to store anything that will be using uh, enzymatic methods to join these nucleotides together I honestly think we'll get to a point where kind of like an inkjet printer where you have you know CMYK um, cyan magenta black and yellow you're going to have ATCG wells <laughs> That's kind of awesome if you think about it. Oh, it's incredibly awesome, and I don't know why we couldn't do it. And you're you're just gonna have a a maybe a synthetic enzyme or something Almost that like a will 3D printer to print. a 3D printer, and it's just gonna spit out whatever you want. And it will be able to do it at at hundreds of thousands of nucleotides a second, and it's gonna be brilliant. So, 
Uh, a future, I await you. Yay. Yay. Delbert, don't forget to segue. And in that future where you're storing information on DNA, you can do your computations on qubits. So oh, is that that 80s video game, Qubits? Qubit. That's Qbert. Oh. Yeah, that was a great Q-Bert. game. My, my second Bert. cousin. Um, so <laughs> Google announced on Tuesday, December 8th, uh, that they made a breakthrough in quantum computing. And actually, by breakthrough, I mean we've uh, known for a while about quantum computers. I believe, if memory serves me correctly, we discussed it on one of our previous shows. Um, but theoretically, we've known about quantum computers, but we haven't had any hard evidence that they are much faster than normal silicon-based computers. And so that's what makes this announcement so exciting. And why do we care about quantum computers? Well, we know that there are problems in the world that are difficult to solve. Um, Protein folding uh, is one of them. We know that to just simulate uh, over the course of you know a second can take upwards of days to do the calculations for all the atoms and figure out the energy minimum landscape that those atoms uh, that are part of the amino acids that make up the protein need to organize themselves. And so that, that's one type of problem that's very difficult to solve. Another one you, know, you could think of trying to pick which metabolic pathway and series of genes are most likely to cause a certain type of cancer. Uh, you would have to sample a lot of different permutations to figure that out. Or if you're Amazon and you want to instantly search your entire global database and find the package where I ordered the latest Spider-Man graphic novel, I mean, that alone is justification for quantum computing in itself. So anyway, in 2013, Google and NASA um, bought one of these D-Wave systems, and D-Wave is the first uh, company to commercialize quantum computers. And Scott had asked for a little bit of background, a refresher course on quantum computing. So uh, very quickly, if you want to think about, uh, if you're familiar with modern day silicon computing, so to speak, uh, where everything is done in bits. You have zeros and ones, and you have an input into a processor, uh, and basically uh, you sort of put an initial state, do some computation, and then you get the result back. Quantum computers work a little bit differently, and of course, um, I'm skipping some of the details, but instead of imagining a bit that can either be a zero or a one, imagine a qubit which can be a zero or a one or any of the numbers between zero and one. So two thirds, like all of them, five eighths, basically. Yeah. So there are more, there's a ton of possibilities. So this current computer that um, NASA and Google had purchased from this D wave company, it has 1000 qubit quantum processors. Uh, to give you an idea of that, that means that there are two to the 1,000 possible solutions um, that this uh, computer can evaluate. But keep in mind, the principle behind it or the idea of it is instead of a normal silicon computer where you might have all of these computing cores and they're breaking up their problems and their calculations, they're doing everything sequentially. I mean, there's some parallelism if you have like a quad-core computer. Now you have four cores that are doing these um, calculations in um, still in sequential speed. But imagine if you could take 2 to the 1,000, which is a very large number. Uh, it's comically large. It's like yeah. fake large, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah, 1 times e to the uh, 300, basically. Or in any case, there it's... The, the size of it is that the that number is larger than there are particles in the observable universe, just to put it in perspective, I guess. But in any case, the quantum computer can calculate all of those potential solutions simultaneously. So it doesn't have to start, you know, going, th- chewing through the problem, so to speak, in sequential time until it gets to an answer. So that's the appealing part of it, is we want to reach that. Now, the announcement uh, this week from Google and NASA doesn't mean that we're there yet. Uh, what they have proven is a very 
sort of narrow application for quantum computing, and it has to do with something called quantum annealing. Uh, quantum annealing is a really cool trick. It basically uses the idea of theoretical physics. And so for uh, those of you who have gone through some chemistry courses where you talked about energy landscapes, and if you can kind of visualize that in your mind right now, or you have this like bumpy kind of curve, this oscillating curve, but instead of like a nice sinusoidal wave going from left to right, imagine that some of the troughs are lower than some of the other ones. Uh, some of the peaks are higher to the next one. And Did so you say energy landscape? Yes. Sounds like an indie band. <laughs> uh, imagine now a particle traversing this energy landscape. And the troughs are states, basically. And so you could have, you know, infinite number of states in there. And as this particle moves um, from one state to the next, it's usually thermal fluctuations that get it from one state to the next. Um, this is when you only have th uh, thermal calculations, this is basically what normal silicon computers can do. And this is called just simulated annealing, where only the thermal energy of a single particle is going to determine uh, its probability to go over one of these energy humps and end up in another state. Now you might be thinking, okay, this is good and all that you could see the application of course to something like the problems I mentioned at the beginning calculating protein folding or determining which combination of a metabolic pathways and series of genes are going to give rise to a cause of cancer but the cool thing is that um, back in 97 it was shown that this sort of thinking thinking applying like a physical mentality to problems actually applied to almost all problems um, in well I shouldn't say all problems, two different types of problems. One would be the optimization problems. Uh, so that's what I'm talking about right now. Imagine a, an energy landscape and you're basically using physics to determine, you know, what is the best solution. But that energy landscape doesn't have to represent a protein path or metabolic pathways. Mm. It could represent, mm, you know, if you had X number of stocks on the market and their values are this at a certain point. Um, and you had $1,000 to invest, what is the global opt the global solution for the best stock that you should invest in at that given time? So it, or if you only have a certain amount of money in your budget and you want to modify your house, you know, and you're limited in terms of what you can purchase with your money, it can give you the best solution, the global solution, so to speak, for that. Quantum annealing is a little bit different than a true quantum computer because it, it doesn't necessarily sample the entire global space, um, but for the most part, uh, it can give you your optimization. Uh, and then there's another type of problem for quantum annealing, but in any case, this is what Google had um, compared. So they did simulated annealing on a traditional computer, uh, and then they did something called quantum Monte Carlo, which if you want to think about it, is similar to quantum annealing, but it's a way to do it on a uh, traditional computer. So that's another challenge in quantum computing is that we, until recently in the last you know decade or so, we haven't had actually quant you know quantum computers that we could apply these quantum theories to. Because again, these are new computers; they have qubits, so they require kind of a new way of programming. Um, so the D wave actually though is can be put um, or gives Google now the ability to actually test quantum annealing an actual quantum computing sort of algorithm on an actual quantum compu computer. Uh, and when you do this, you can go to their um, um, Google research blog and see their post from uh, yesterday. Uh, otherwise, it's also hosted on the archive, but you can see their nice little graph and it shows that their quantum annealing problem and what they did is they took a problem that had oh, about a thousand different variables and they wanted to solve that function and the D-Wave did it at 100 million times faster um, than the simulated annealing or the QMC, basically than the traditional computers that you might be listening to beta sandwich science That's podcast on right now. fast. Yes, it's extremely fast. So, um, 
the blog is really nice because they, you know they say that this doesn't mean that you know we now have quantum computing that can be used tomorrow for practical problems but it shows probably for the first time that yes there is the potential to have um, a computing performance increase using quantum uh, computers and they make some capitulations they say that um, you could probably get um, better um, results using kind of different algorithms on other types of quantum computers uh, but they said that those might not scale as well so the next step is is that they're looking at this from a hardware standpoint um, and they're going to try to find more practical problems that they can apply this to. So is this, if I'm hearing you right, is this good at at brute force solving problems, things with lots of variables that yes. are... Yes, yes. So, two Cause, questions. Because the idea, Scott, is again that it solves it instantly. And so if you kind of look at the the architecture for the D-Wave computers, and I'm, I don't understand them perfectly well because it, it, there's... A, uh, a bridge from you sending a problem to the D-Wave computer servers, it actually has to translate it from a digital signal because you sent it zeros and ones into an analog signal. And I'm not quite sure like the theoretical considerations of how they do that, but essentially then they zap it onto the qubits, which are really just atoms um, for the most part, uh, and then they instantly, near instantly, get the answer back. So it's not like a typical computer that kind of has to turn over it because they can sample that global landscape, if you will. And instead of doing what our computers do, which is simulate, you know, kind of all of the potentials in each of the potential answers, it just looks at it at once and basically minimizes it in, hmm. in one loop, one click of the clock. So something you said clock. just actually like help me dial in something if I got it right, which makes a lot of sense. Like, so to use an analogy, I know that audiophiles really like records, and one of the reasons they like records is because of something they call, and people argue against it, something, but it's called uh, infinite resolution, which means that because it's an entire, an, entirely yeah. an analog yep. process, go ahead. I'm just saying yes, I see where yep. you're going. Um, because it's in, all processes, when if you, when you create a record, are done through an analog process, at least in the past they were, uh, that if you look at the waveform that's getting to your ear, you can break that waveform up into an infinite number of pieces, and there's going to be, no matter how small you break it down to, there's always, because it's a nonlinear you know, line here, you have a waveform, there's going to be uh, so much more information that can be contained within an analog waveform than a digital one, because a digital has to say has limitations. It has to make ones and zeros. It has to it has to cut out information in order to encompass it, because you can't have an infinitely complex digital file, or it would be infinitely large. Whereas waveforms don't substitute don't have to deal with that. With quantum computing, you're converting the ones and zeros into this quantum analog form, for lack of a better term, because I don't have the vocabulary. But uh, and and that way, because you said there's an infinite number of 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 of, of, of uh, positions between zero and one, by converting that to an analog qubit or or quantum bit, you that's how it's using. At least that's the that's the pool from which it can it can solve. And, and create infinite things between the two numbers. Is, am I at all in the ballpark here? I, I mean, I think that's a helpful way to probably compare it. Um, but the, a better way is to think about it in terms of there being, I mean, again, if you can think of your problem and the potential solutions that you might have to it, is that if you can map your problem onto a quantum computer, and in this case, the two to the 1,000 possible solutions can be instantly mapped to it, and it will instantly find the global minimum using this quantum annealing concept. Or in other words, it'll find the best answer out of that. So you know, It's not just the infinite complexity, but it's kind of like in computing, like if you do programming at all, it's like having a, an array or a hash where you can instantly yeah. access any piece of information. Um, and in this case, truly instantly, all at the same time. It's a, it's like a, it's a, it's a, a database that has complete accessibility at, at and instantaneously. Right. It's the instantaneous part that yeah. probably is. That's cool. The so the two things I want to know is a, uh, when is someone going to use this to mine bitcoins? Uh, because <laughs> oh my gosh. that 
MFer is going to be a very rich person very quickly. The, the <laughs> next, the, I, I think the rate of the, yeah, the next Bitcoin is supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to take 88 years to mine the last 10% or something. Is that what it is? It, yeah, well, it gets exponentially, as, as, uh, well, maybe our listeners know, it gets exponentially more difficult to mine the coins over time yes. uh, by design uh, so that it deals with increasing computing power as well as the rarity of the coin itself. This would ruin the Bitcoin Market. It would completely destroy it. Yeah. yeah. And I think well, there might be some, I think somebody was trying to do that already. It's just, it's really hard. Like if you look at the history of where we've come in quantum computers, like it was just in, I think, 2001 that we were actually able to uh, factor 15. So we could, <laughs> using yeah. five different atoms, we could figure out that three times five uh, equaled 15. And that, was pretty much as far as we got for about a decade and then in 2011 these first quantum computers hit the market uh, and it's kind of exciting to see because you if you go and I think Wikipedia has a nice little um, um, timeline of this but you can see since 2011 like first it was just a few qubits and then like the next year it went up to like 80 uh, and now in 2015 we're up to a thousand qubits and so, you know, if you're familiar with Moore's law, which is that law that um, it's less of a law and more just an observation that computing power has essentially doubled in about the course of uh, every 18 months or so, uh, that's been pretty critical to kind of our economy and what we've been able to do um, technically. Uh, it's been really important if, if you look at that. Uh, but we're reaching that saturation. So we talked a little bit at the top of the show about the theoretical limit um, for processors. I looked it up right now. So there are 14 nanometers. Uh, yes, nine Sky is Lake actually 14. where we're at right now. But I think like for commercially available, yeah, you're probably in the 14 to 20 uh, nanometer section. But in you know, any I think case, theoretically, it's like six or eight. Isn't that like pretty much when things start breaking down? Yes. And that's that is the theoretical limit. So if we if we think that what we've done in the last, oh, I don't know, 50 to 60 years uh, from a technical standpoint is important in terms of human advancement um, and developing, you know, new medical devices, new computers um, uh, is important and we still want to make that same sort of rate of improvement, we're not going to get there with the traditional silicon computers that we have now. Um, quantum computers is one of the ways that we can do that. Obviously, there's a lot to figure out. Some people think that instead of using quantum computers, we'll use molecular um, computers, which would kind of be the, the intermediate between where we are now and quantum computers. Uh, it's the same concept. It's just a little bit easier to um, keep them stable. So one problem with quantum computers, like so these computers actually have like many layers of radioactive shielding, is because you can get what's called decoherence in the qubits or in the atoms that are used to do the computation. So you can imagine if those atoms are not tightly controlled, there's any sort of you know interference or instability in the system, you're going to screw up your entire computing core. Um, so molecular computing, which again wouldn't be wouldn't have more possibilities than there are particles in the universe to them, but they would still have enough probably to give us a huge advance and keep us um, going on the Moore's law are a lot more stable because we can use like graphene molecules um, and carbon molecule, um, yeah, well, graphene molecules to do the computing. You guys have seen Minority Report, right? Yes. yes. Right. Cool movie. I really enjoyed it. Tom Cruise. So to me, like, if there is a a basis to which Minority Report can be built, to which we are able to detect thought crimes, which if you haven't seen the movie, is yeah, yeah. crimes before you committed it. This is the basis to which I think you could build that, which is, if you think about people, we have a few billion people on planet Earth. They are Most of them are being tracked continuously, willingly, via their smartphones and the Internet and all these things which can be accessed by computer systems, and it is completely computationally prohibited, time prohibitive, cost prohibited, currently uh, to track and try to make huge inferences about behavior uh, with so much data. But get yourself a decent quantum computer. Yeah. Computer, Can you imagine, like, they're like, well, statistically, Scott, based on people like you, because you're searching this stuff and because you did this and because you went from here, here, to here, and here, and here, and here uh, over the last uh, uh, 48 months, but... You decided to go here one day. 
that in 43.1% of the times mean you're going to murder someone. So we're just going to lock you up. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why that, like, couldn't theoretically happen. Yeah, and that's the other, I didn't go into it, but I talked about there being two types of problems you can solve with this quantum annealing. Again, so what we've seen today from Google, it isn't like the universal Turing machine. Um, To get to that point, that's probably 100 years out to get to that point in quantum computing. So really what we're talking about is imagine like if you had a computer that could only do uh, addition and division problems. That's sort of the same thing. So this D2 system that Google and NASA have, which costs who knows how much, it solves those optimization problems. And then the other one is the sampling problem. Uh, And that's where instead of trying to figure out kind of your best energy minimum in the energy landscape, if you want to keep visualizing that in your mind, I know it's hard in a podcast to kind of discuss some of these things, but imagine the other way. If you already know the particle, but you want to find where it exists in the energy state, what it looks like around you, uh, you can. It, it, that's called a sampling problem. So you sample all of these different spots, basically, uh, in that landscape. And it's the same thing. So you can take all of these data points about Scott, every last you know, minutia detail in your entire life and build that landscape. And now we can see, you know, the comparative probabilities of, okay, here's the state of Scott not being a murdering psychopath and here's the state of him is. And now you could do the optimization problem to see what the likelihood of it that um, you'll enter that state. Uh, So it's, so the sampling problem, in other words, is useful in machine learning. So now you can see why Google is interested in this. Um, Because obviously machine learning, they're trying to use that to solve like search problems. Um, But really now imagine we talked about getting, you know, answers back almost instantaneously. Um, Those optimization problems, there's a class of them that's related to searching. um, It's called Grover's algorithm um, that's related to searching through databases. So you can really see where uh, Google's motivation is in all of this. Well, thanks, Delbert. My pleasure. Thanks for fun story. Chat about it. Yeah, it was a huge. I mean, it's this is huge. This really is huge. When you look back in the timeline, you know, a hundred years from now, whatever it takes until quantum computers are used, this will definitely be one of the dates in there. You know, the first real uh, representation or or proof of quantum computing uh, in a practical sense. Skynet's coming. Get your doomsday (laughs) shelter ready, people. So uh, I had two stories. Uh, both of them are very short, but I'm only going to do one of them so that we can get to our science game here. Do you guys want to hear about spider webs or pharmacology with an F? Oh, <laughs> pharmacology I gotta, with an F. I got to go with that, too. I agree. Okay. So, um, generally, the, uh, the drugs we create and distribute, like aspirin, are small molecules, and they're often plant-derived. But what we do is we tweak them a little bit. We mass produce them in all as well. And they're almost always small, relatively simple molecules because it makes the chemistry of mass production really easy and cheap. On the other end of the scale, we can look at like, so, you know, use aspirin to treat a disorder, a pain and inflammation, whatever the case would be. On the other end of the scale, we've got gene therapy, which will actually fix the defective gene itself, whatever is causing what ails you to be there. And, uh, um, and, and, and then, so you no longer have whatever disease you're looking at. Aspirin was a bad thing because it's not normally treating a disease state. But, but uh, in any case, those are the two ends of the spectrum. We either fix the DNA or provide you to something to alleviate what your body is doing wrong here. Now, the middle ground, which is really coming on to line these past decade or so, is using plants and animals or bacteria to to create complex molecules like enzymes. And then we pure them out. We use it, purify them out. And we use them for for humans, uh, because they're these molecules are way too complex to make with current um, technology as far as mass produce them without the aid of, of of bacteria or animals here. And many diseases are the results of defective enzymes. So it makes sense that we want to get uh, we want to get them back. Um, to inside of you to use as a temporary measure to stop whatever the lack of the enzyme was causing here. Uh, a very simple example that most people are familiar with is lactase. If you're lactose intolerant, you don't produce the lactase enzyme. You can't break down lactose, which is a sugar milk, a milk, or sorry, a, a, a sugar in milk, and it causes you to get the poopies. You take the lactase. Poopies. 
the poopies, you take lack or the gassies and the poopies. And I live take, with someone who has that, and it's not just the poopies. It's a terrifying <laughs> death cloud. <laughs> so to prevent the terrifying death cloud that individual before they take lactose can take a pill that contains lactase the enzyme that breaks it down and therefore no death cloud is formed or less of a death cloud. or yeah less of a death cloud depending on how bad the situation is here so uh keep that in mind and i'll say that the the fda which is really cool they have just approved a chicken that has been genetically engineered. So we actually did gene modifying, g- genetic engineering to uh, a chicken to produce a specific drug inside of its eggs. The drug is called Kanuma, and it's a recombinant human enzyme made by Alexon Pharmaceuticals. And it replaces what is a faulty enzyme in people uh, that have a rare inherited condition called lysosomal acid lipase deficiency. And this prevents your body from breaking down fatty acid molecules into the cells. More specifically, uh, it causes fat to accumulate in the liver, the spleen, in the vasculature, vasculature, and and uh, in infants it can strike very quickly and it can be fatal. So, so what they're using are is uh, um, is a chicken. They're genetically modifying the chicken to produce a very complex enzyme for a, a human enzyme that could not be made inside of a lab here. And these new class of drugs, uh, as I suggested going into this, are called pharmaceuticals with an F because farm for animals and it's very clever. Um, <laughs> and it goes back before just this drug that was proven. In 2009, the FDA approved a genetically modified goat that produces an anticoagulant factor called ATRNY, T-R-I-N. It's an antithrombin in the milk. Uh, and last year, the FDA authorized a drug treating hereditary angioedema that uh, is produced by transgenic rabbits. So now we have goats, rabbits, and chickens all producing enzymes and and large molecule, complex molecules that can be purified out. You're not eating the egg. You're not eating the milk or the rabbit. They're purifying out this molecule, and it's probably been his-tagged or something. I don't know what exactly they've done. And you can easily purify the molecule out, then you give it to the individual. So, so it's a very cool thing here. And now don't get this confused with genetically engineered animals that we eat like we talked about just a couple of weeks ago the awkward managed salmon that was just approved by the fda last month and with those you are it's a transgenic animal that has a modified gene maybe even from a different animal but it's being used to excuse me it's being used to um to cause the animal to grow more meat or or have more mass or to develop more quickly uh and we still we eat the product of that it's not meant to affect us at all other than to make the animal more tasty more quickly. Um, so the other thing that they mentioned is that these transgenic chickens, they're not intended to enter the food supply at all. They're just used to create these drugs. But just like with the Aqua Advantage and other an- transgenic animals, people are worried that the modification is going to get out and it's going to become part of the larger system, which is a very vague general concern. I think it is a moderately valid concern, but it's not enough to stop people doing something like this. Uh, it's uh, especially with a chicken. Um, the chance of a fish escaping and getting into the ecosystem, I think, is probably greater than a chicken. A chicken is a very, um, very containable item, uh, and and you don't get a lot of horizontal chain transfers between between mammals like that or animals like that so anyways i don't know um my only question i had about this and they didn't answer it was i wonder how this enzyme affects the chicken itself it is a human enzyme after all this thing is coursing through its blood it is producing this in vast quantities so i wonder uh i wonder if this enzyme you know hurts the chicken at all i don't know i just don't know stupid chickens stupid chickens and that's what i got there and shoot we're doing good on time here so i think it's time to move on to the final and last segment of the show, which we've all grown to love, called Beta Sandwich Science History. Beta Sandwich Science History. Something, I don't know. Yay. Sweet music there. Music, music. Are you going to put it in this time? Thank you, Dell, And I will be happy to tell you that it's been in every time. And the individual oh, who's concerned I with that, feel it. I mean, hear it. <laughs> yeah, when I went back and listened to that episode yet again, it was still not there. That is just completely just inaccurate. I will give you the exact time that it was in. Actually, do that because I'm curious as to why I'm not hearing it. Okay, 
<laughs> so uh, uh, if you're new to the game, which most of you aren't at this point, the idea is that we have three events in scientific history throughout the world. It could be from uh, anywhere from a thousand or two years ago up to modern times. There are three stories, there are three scientific events, and our host, and you at home as well, need to put them in the correct order, as in when they happen, oldest to newest. This week, we have a theme as well. I like the theme ones. I think we should always do theme ones. Because everyone is sick and dying, it is all about viruses. So these will all be virus-related oh, stories. Sure. <laughs> well <played. laughs> so... The first story, or the first scientific event, I should say, is this was the year that the first human virus was described that caused yellow fever. Okay? So when did we first say... Now, this isn't the first time someone knew they had yellow fever. This is when we knew a virus caused yellow fever. Okay? They, are you talking about identifying the virus or just saying, hey, it's a viral infection? Um... This is when a report was submitted hypothesizing that mosquitoes transmitted a virus that caused yellow fever. So not the discovery of said virus, just the idea that that's the vector. That it was a virally caused, yeah, it was a virally derived disease from a mosquito transfer, yes. If I can be any more vague. The second story is... This is the year that bacteriophages were discovered. If you remember, a bacteriophage is a virus that infects a bacteria. And uh, fun fact, they're generally innocuous and not terribly damaging to humans. And they can be used as alternatives to antibiotics in some cases because they're going after bacteria. And if we, uh, if we can train a virus to kill the bacteria we're interested in, then we don't need to use antibiotics. So when were bacteriophages discovered? And the third one is, this is the year that they found out that tobacco mosaic virus is a disease caused by a virus that will uh, pass through uh, filters and it cannot be seen with light microscope and it will, again, affect tobacco leaves. This is kind of an abstract one, I understand, as far as a week goes, not just this one story. But uh, they're all virus related. So again, when was yellow fever discovered as a virus? <coughs> when were bacteriophages discovered? And when did tobacco mosaic disease, was it discovered that it was a virus? Hmm. Uh, so, uh, I, well, let's go with the first one. What's the oldest one in history? I'm thinking, and I should go first because I know less than Christian about this, but I'm going to... That would be difficult to do. You're going to say... I mean, the yellow fever virus makes me think that, okay, they probably had to know about the viruses first before they could think that it was caused by that that disease was caused by a virus and I remember vaguely somewhere in the annals of my brain about the tobacco you have an annal in your brain the annals the halls the, it's the called dense. an ear hole okay <laughs> sorry well you're a certain kind of hole <laughs> that the tobacco mosaic virus was like brought up in our biology books for uh, so I'm going to say that's the first. The discovery so the, of that was the first. The tobacco one is first. And if you were to ponder a year, what would you say? I'm going to say like 19... That was probably makes me sound really dumb. 1910? 1911? 1910. Okay. Only need that in case it comes down to a tie. Uh, Christian, are you in agreement? Is tobacco mosaic disease the oldest known virus or something else? See, I was thinking that was the newest you're welcome to think that. So what do you think is the oldest then? I want to say, oh, God. See, the it's tempting to say the yellow fever because you're just talking about them saying, hey, this is a virus, not this is the virus that does it. Right. Um, so that's sort of an older thing, although – You've got a lot at stake this week, Christian. You're... I suck at this game. Like, I am flat out <laughs> terrible at this game. So I don't really have a lot because my expectation for myself is zero. Um, oh, bacteriophage. When was that discovered? I'm using those for a while. I'm going to say, I'm going to go with just my random instinct and say that yellow fever was the earliest, and I'm going to say 1900. Not the time matters since there's only two of us and we're both okay christian is going yellow fever 
and you're saying 1900. Okay. I think they go in the order that you read them in backwards. So your second guess then would be the bacteriophage. Correct. Okay, so Christian is going bacteriophage. In what year would you think that happened? Oh, geez. Um, maybe the 20s or 30s? I feel like I might be early on that. So we'll just go 1930. We'll split the difference for you there. Or 1925, what do you want? And then 230, and then 1950 for the virus, the tobacco virus. Okay, tobacco 1950. Um, Delbert, what's your second one? I'll do yellow fever virus next, uh, 1923, and then bacteriophage 1932. Okay, so uh, we have a definitive winner, as you might have guessed here. And that winner is... Christian Copley Salem. Yes. <laughs> Chris got th- got them all right this week. Uh, oh, nice. The first human virus described. Oh no, bacteriophage. No, you didn't get them all right. But you got the, you got them right in the matter in the, the way it <laughs> we got matters. Got the first one. Yay. Um. Wait, bacteriophage. Let me make sure you won. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I think he did this to you last time too, Christian. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, he, he he stole victory from you. Even when you're sick, you, you know, you're down at your weakest. He's still yeah. he's not gonna. Re- no, 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 no. You, you won, Christian. Okay, so uh, so uh, yellow fever. Uh, U.S. Army physician Walter Reed, as in Walter Reed Medical oh. Center, it's very famous. Uh, after pioneering work in Cuba. He reported in 1881 the hypothesis that mosquitoes ah. transmitted the deadly My disease. My date was not that far off, actually. Not terribly far off. You said 1910. Yeah. Uh, the next one was not bacteriophage. It was um, two independent... Um, uh, I should start, sorry. In 1882, Dmitry Ivanovsky found the tobacco mosaic virus disease is caused by a virus that passes through bacterial filters. Up until a lot of this area, this is 82. This is only a year after this. So, so right like around the late... Decade. Right. And, and right around the last, like right around the end of the, the 19th century, we started figuring out about viruses. And before that, we thought that we knew what bacteria were. You could even see them in microscopes. And we thought they had these really good bacterial filters. And they're like, hey, we know that bacteria can cause diseases and all these sort of things. So we just have, they had filters that could filter out the bacteria. And then they started realizing that, no, in fact, there's something. There's smaller. a problem here. Um, things can still get sick, uh, even when we're using these bacterial filters here. And that goes into the third story, which was uh, the bacteriophage. And this is where it really dialed in. This wasn't until 1950 that we discovered bacteriophages. Wow. And wow. And, yeah, I know, right? You'd think it'd be much earlier than that. Um, two independent investigators, uh, what they found was that in the UK, they accidentally found out that a filterable agent, which is a virus that caused the bacteria um, caused the bacteria to die, was growing, or to grow in lice, excuse me, die. Um, and they, they showed that it could pass through a porcelain filter and it could be transmitted to other colonies of the same bacteria and he wasn't sure uh, whether or not it was a virus or what was happening here, and he called it a bacteriolytic agent because it was blowing up bacteria. And um, uh, it's also interesting that he was actually attempting to grow a virus in culture, but he didn't. He was using bacteria, and he didn't realize that he was contaminating his own bacteria with a virus that targeted bacteria. So it was he was working with Staphylococcus. So in other words. He just happened to have a virus that contaminated his bacteria. Oh, whoops. And we didn't know that virus could contaminate bacteria back then. So it was this big cluster F and eventually figured it out. And, well, now he's in the history book. So go team. Christian, you are up. You've won. Congratulations. Hey, well done, sir. And I'll just hey. put it in here so we know here. Delbert, you have played six games and you've won three. And I think you might be able to figure that ratio out. Christian has played seven, and he has won three. With a quantum computer, I could do it 100 million times faster. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there we go. Oh, those numbers aren't going to be quite accurate. i got a different movie of this. Uh Uh-huh. All right. I think that's right. I'm still winning. That's all that matters. Okay. (laughs) 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 All right. uh, That's going to do it. And... um, I promise never to do this ever again, so I need someone else to do it for us now that we're not asking people to listen to uh, to uh, to do the survey anymore. And what would that be, Christian? 
to rate us on iTunes. Yes, and that I would be exactly that, accurate. I think and I would, that it is a terrible miscarriage of justice for you to basically assign things to poor kids in Africa so that you don't have to do it because you promised you wouldn't. You're still doing it. Uh, I wouldn't call it a miscarriage of justice. I would say finding God's loophole, which <laughs> sounds like a weird pornography thing. But uh, whoa, <laughs> I know, right? Like that just kept getting worse, and it wasn't get any better until you stopped talking. Let's go hang out at God's loophole. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe I'm just. Maybe I should stop talking. Probably. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Oh, bye. Delbert, I don't know if you had a, a thing planned. I apologize. I did, but... Uh, oh! Do know, it! Go, it's... go, 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 go! <laughs> I really want to hear it. It's the highlight of my week, Delbert. I just completely passed it up. So, Delbert, how does the show end? <laughs> I guess when you stop talking and we all shut the... <laughs> I had a... I, I had a slip up. Let it go. I'm sorry. Oh. Good times. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. If you listened in, you would have heard Scott doing his worst Oprah impersonation ever. <laughs> you get a button. You get a button. You get a button. <laughs> Scott will send out our token of thanks for all of your listener feedback. Don't forget to return that DNA and rewind it. Movies in DNA. Can it be? Scott shared a new advances in storing information in DNA. He's anxiously waiting for Sharknado 3 to finally hit a skin cell near him. <laughs> and as if the NSA didn't know enough about us, quantum computers have for the first time been shown to actually work. Thank you, Google. Yeah. And Haven't We Given Enough is now the new battle cry of chickens everywhere thanks to pharmacology. In addition to stealing their babies, eggs, we can now also get drugs from genetically modified chickens. If you enjoyed these stories and more, then do not forget to tune in to the next exciting episode of the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Yay! Yay. <laughs> That's All right, up. sorry, Delbert. That's totally clucked up. <laughs> See you guys next week. Awesome. I'm going to do a chicken slam poetry, by the way. We'll talk about it off air. Chicken I'm, slam poetry? Oh, I'm very excited about chicken slam poetry. I guess I can incorporate them being used as genetic slaves now. It'll be great. Where, where are you doing the slam poetry, A? And B, why is it chickens? Uh, well, it's going to be for YouTube. I'm making a chicken thing, and he'll be like a really angry chicken doing slam poetry about being used, you know? He's like, you call me free range? I think that's deranged. A bit strange. And it will be like a... like a whole... Oh, my God. <laughs> he'll just be a really angry chicken yeah. in a chicken coop about Wait, so life. you had like one... That's the basis for your, your setup? You had one rhyme? No, I got lots of rhymes, but you have to wait for it. Slam it's poetry should never rhyme. When is well, this... No, is this gonna happen? It's supposed to be syncopate. It will happen. We gotta go. I'm still recording. <laughs> I'm gonna stop now. Yeah, please. They've they've endured <laughs> enough. Bye, everyone. Bye.